I'm John Hall. This is Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. And this is Chase Sariva of Arizona Wilderness. Um, so, you know, I, I think talking to other brewers and getting different input and thinking about, you know, stuff outside your little kind of like microcosm and your little bubble of your own brewery is, is extremely advantageous for the health and sustainability and progress of your company. Welcome to the show. I'm John Hall, and we're produced by Beer Edge, the newsletter for beer professionals. It's a subscription service that I launched with Andy Crouch a few weeks back, and we've been really overwhelmed at the response. We're talking with brewers, growers, and other beer professionals for the twice-a-week publication that can help give a better understanding of the industry. In recent weeks, I've talked to Jim Cook of Boston Beer about their new location and the Dogfish Head integration. We've explored the battle of light lager dollars and did an exit interview with Randy Schrecker. And Andy talked about his experience blind tasting nearly 40 hard seltzers and what that means for the overall beer industry. Each week, we try to tell the stories others don't and offer insight from leading experts. An annual subscription gets you all that and more. Check out BeerEdge.com for more details. And thanks for your support. And now, let me tell you what we're going to do this week. Last week, I headed out to Phoenix to check out the beer scene. It was the 20th anniversary of the Arizona Strong Beer Festival and the 10th anniversary of Arizona Beer Week. The beer scene has really grown in the last several years, but it seems to be largely self-contained, with most breweries staying within the border. Of course, there are a few exceptions to that, including the now AB InBev-owned Four Peaks. But for the beer lovers, for the beer traders, and for those who like to stay on top of the buzz, perhaps there's no better known brewery in the state than Arizona Wilderness. So it started off small when it was founded in 2013, but soon found its business plan and popularity supercharged when it won big at the annual Rate Beer Awards. From there, its popularity and its footprint grew. So I sat down with Chase Sariva, the head brewer who joined the brewery just a few years ago after deciding against a career in dentistry. He started off in Pittsburgh, came to the Southwest, and landed a job with Santan, which is another local brewery, before eventually winding up at Arizona Wilderness. Right now, the brewery has its original brew pub, an off-site barrel and fooder facility called the Woodnote Cellar, and a downtown Phoenix tap room. The brewery celebrates all things wild and nature-focused, and many of the beers reflect that. But there's also a great deal of clean beer in-house, and that's something Sariva is passionate about and that we get into. But I started off by talking about the early days and the increased notoriety and the pressure that comes with customer expectations and the way that he and his team manage those. Here's our conversation. So there is a very, very high bar um, that I like to hold us to and that I think we should be held to. We pour with some of the best breweries in the world, uh, different festivals across the world. Um, so, you know, we, I don't, I'd never want to produce a product that I'd be embarrassed to showcase um, in the home state, but let alone, you know, internationally next to breweries um, across the world that are just making waves in the industry. So, it is uh, challenging. It can be stressful at times. Um, so for the person that's kind of, that's trying our beer for the first time and has heard a lot about us and kind of has this, this kind of uh, expectation of what we may be, um, I try and kind of figure out what that expectation is because a lot of people have heard so many different things about us. Um, and a lot of it stems from, 
you know, John and Pat's, uh, maybe Instagram, uh, the wilderness humans, or, you know, when they've met John and Pat out in the, the wild per se. Um, uh, so, you know, some people see us as, uh, and some people think of us as like purely almost a Saison or like mixed fermentation brewery, which yeah. we are not. We do have a pretty broad focus on that um, over here at the Woodnote Cellar, but we definitely do not just do those things. Other people see us as just a foraging brewery. We don't, we don't just forage. We do do some foraging, um, but we work with a ton of local farms um, and local producers and local purveyors of uh, different items, ingredients, uh, agriculture, things like that. Um, and other people think of us as, oh man, they make really good IPAs or they make really good stouts or, you know, they, but I think we're really diverse is what we are. And I think uh, someone that comes in with a set expectation, um, at least I would try and diversify that mindset a little bit and try and try and give them the full picture of what we're about uh, beyond just maybe like a stylistic boundary and kind of give them the broader ethos of the company and and uh, just try and lead them to who we are and why we do what we do. So how important is diversity in the beers that you make? In terms of just offering styles? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's very important for us personally. We're not going to be that brewery that you walk into and see you know, a total of 15 taps and 13 of those are IPAs with insert hop A, B, and C in different orders here and there. Why not? It's just not what we're about. We can make those beers and we can do them well and we can use Arizona ingredients in them. Um, you know, we work with Sanago malts primarily as our base malt, which we can talk about in a little bit if you yeah, like. Yeah, I'd like to. Um, so we can use Sanago malt, we can use Sonora malted white wheat, but that's such a just a very thin view of what Arizona the state has to offer. And that's kind of heading back to the ethos portion is what we are all about is really showcasing what this state can offer and brings to the table. So what does the state bring to the table as far as ingredients goes? Because, Almost, you know, like we yeah. hear, yeah, anything and everything you'd want. I mean, is that a true? Lot of, yeah. It's really, it's incredible when you dive into it. Uh, a lot of people think of Arizona uh, just as, you know, Phoenix or just as this desert landscape that's barren and there's no water and there's, you know, nothing grows here. But the reality of it is that we have a ton of different uh, produce and um, different ingredients that we can add and use and that people are growing in Arizona um, that we're able to use in our products. You know, yeah. anything from obviously citrus season right now. So name a citrus. We've got it. Um, you know, limes, lemons, 17,000 different varieties of oranges. You know, it's very, uh, it's crazy this time of year, just how much citrus the state produces, um, from things to, uh, pecans and different types of nuts to blackberries, strawberries, you know, um, we work with peaches, apricots, uh, prickly pear, pretty much, you know, you can name something and we can most likely make it. I've seen pineapple i've seen bananas and i've seen mango and granted these are in some very like specialized yeah uh, and not in huge quantities not in huge quantities yeah. right um but this state can grow a lot of different things so when you're using citrus when you're talking about the grapefruit when you're talking about the lemon and the limes and and, and all of that are, is it mainly just zest are you going deeper into it are you doing anything special with the fruit because like citrus has played such a huge part in beer 
in the last 40 years or so. Um, but there's so many different ways that you can use it. I'm curious as to, yeah, we've developed a system. I think that works well for us. Um, and because we bring in whole fruit, it becomes challenging to zest a thousand pounds. Yeah. Uh, so we'll actually use a, <clears throat> excuse me, a Nutrafaster juicer, kind of like an industrial uh-huh. juicer, juicer that you would see at, you know, a juicing company or a, a juice, juice store or shop in your neighborhood. So we use one of those and we actually juice the, a majority of our citrus hole. So we'll cut it into quarters, whatever, whatever will fit through that juicing, you know, hole. We'll, yeah. we'll cut it to that size and juice the entire, uh, fruit. So cool for a variety of reasons. Obviously there's no waste involved. Um, we also get a ton of the oils and the peel out and into the final products. Um, obviously the only thing that you'd really like to kind of think about when you're doing that and something that we've thought about and had to kind of adjust our recipes upon is just that pith, uh, the bitterness that it can provide. Yeah. that's what I was curious about. Exactly. So we did transition. We used to peel all of our citrus and just to juice the inner you know, portion of it and add that juice to, uh, beers. Um, then we kind of went to, well, during that time, we actually would even take those peels. We would dehydrate them and try to use them in future beers yeah. as well. Um, just the labor involved in that was a little bit too much. So when we transitioned to basically a whole fruit processing and juicing, we would essentially just back out some bitterness out of the kettle of whatever beer we were producing to still kind of provide that balance. Um, so your bitterness isn't going to be as strong from hops, but you're still going to get this perceived, you know, bitterness uh, in conjunction with the hops that can add to where you'd like it to be if you just kind of take a little bit of hops out of the equation um, now with grapefruit the ones we just saw in the warehouse we will still peel those yeah that and we uh, walked through the warehouse to sit down and do this so that's right. yeah. yeah and we, you we've got about 1500 pounds of rio red and oro blanco grapefruit uh grown down the street from us um, sitting in the warehouse right now that we're going to put in a grapefruit goza here soon so with grapefruit we will peel just okay. because, you know, that skin and that pith is so bitter and it really is pretty thick. Yeah. Um, so then we can use the peels and kind of steep the peels in the beer as well. But yeah, we've kind of been all over the place. And um, one of the challenges we've seen, and uh, it was a little surprising that this happened, but when we started using whole fruit and whole citrus as a, the juicing component in that way, we... Um, we would oftentimes see fermentation just completely stop after we added the citrus fruit and juice. That would make sense. Yeah. But yeah. It, it's the, the oils Yeah, yeah, are antimicrobial. So um, there have been times where, you know, if we're making a double IPA, sometimes we use a little bit of sugar to just like touch up the ABV. Um, and the process we had been doing beforehand was to add the juice and then, you know, some sugar after that to hit ABV. But um, when we started juicing whole fruit, we realized that that sugar that was added after the fruit addition, it wasn't being fermented out. So it was essentially the antimicrobial properties of the citrus and oils, the essential oils and the skins itself was um, a big enough impact to basically deter any type of re-fermentation um, of that sugar later on. Yeah. So we've kind of had to had to adjust a little bit after that as well. Yeah. What else have you learned about using with local ingredients? Um, it requires a lot of time, uh, a lot of manpower. And like I said, we have a lot of grapefruit in the warehouse right now, but that's not the extent of our citrus. Yeah. Um, and probably because you guys are using 
small farms as yeah. well. Like it's probably just a lot of communication with the farmers. Yeah, constant. just That's time a on the phone. Part to, of my job. Yeah, communicating with them. Uh, you know, watermelon's a great example of this. So every summer we do watermelon goza. And we get our watermelon from a farm in the Verde Valley, the Hauser and Hauser Farms, who also, they actually grow the barley that's then malted at Sanagua as well. So um, it, it's a constant communication with the farmer because they're, you know, in, they're kind of, they, they have to work with Mother Nature, right? They're, they don't have complete control of when these products are going to be available. So they're communicating with us, like, how many pounds do you want? Okay, and we're asking them, when can we get this? you know, projected date number one, projected date number two, and then trying to manipulate our brew schedule around that to get the fruit in and to brew the beer at a time where it makes sense. And we're not just, we don't either have a tank that's, you know, held up for a month because we don't have the fruit that we need to put in there or vice versa. We get the fruit, but we don't have the beer ready to add the fruit to. Um, So it's a very, it's a puzzle. It's a, it's a juggle. Um, both with the communication, you know, sometimes grape harvest is also another really good one. So we'll get a lot of grapes from, you know, down in the, uh, down in Southeast Arizona or even up towards Cottonwood and the Verde Valley once again. And I mean, the, the wineries know this and the farmers of the grapevines know that, you know, when they harvest it's, they're out there checking the fields on a daily, sometimes hourly basis to check for sugar content and pH um, increases or decreases. And when it's time to harvest, they go. Right. And then, you know, with grapes, when they harvest, we need to be ready to bring those grapes in and process them ourselves. So yeah, it's kind of all across the board, a lot of communication with the farmer and then even transportation of these ingredients. And a lot of these companies don't have huge shipping lanes or shipping companies that they work with. So, you know, oftentimes I'm driving out to a farm, picking up, peaches or any type of citrus, uh, apples, pears, things like that, uh, and then bringing them back. So yeah, it's a lot of time effort, um, but it's definitely, it's worth it. For the two gozas that you mentioned, the grapefruit and then the, uh, the watermelon, is this a base? Is, is there one base that you use or do you tweak the base beer recipe based on the fruit? Yeah, we tweak it based on the fruit and based on the intent of the project. <clears throat> And what we would like to obviously see in the glass. Um, and oftentimes it's just slight manipulations of grain bill, you know, percentages of wheat uh, versus our base malts. If we have or want to add any character malt in there um, that we think would be nice. If we want to, you know, accentuate some citrus character with a little bit of coriander or if, you know, our coriander addition should be a little bit less because it's not going to melt as well with this type of uh, ingredient. So yeah, every beer we do is different uh, in some regard. I want to jump back to something that you were talking about earlier um, when it came to going to festivals around the world. Mm-hmm. Obviously being a well-known brewery and obviously being a brewery that most festivals would love your name attached to, mm-hmm. how do you determine which ones you say yes to versus which ones you don't? There are a couple mainstays. So, you know, when we're looking at the yearly lineup, there are some festivals that we will just not say no to. Um, and we'll come, you know, at the, the beginning of the lineup and the ones we will say yes to and forego going to some other ones for. Uh, a lot of times it's what else is going on. So we have our kind of like lineup, uh, you know, I think it's in May or April. The McKellar Beer Celebration in Copenhagen is yeah. the one we always go to. 
Um, but it's also a very, you know, challenging time of the year. I think it might be April actually, because you know CBC is right around that time, and there's the it's festival season. Yeah. You know, yeah, the weather is getting nicer for everyone in the rest of the country, whereas us, we're kind of like at the tail end of of our nice weather before we hit you know the dreaded triple digits. But you know, it's a very busy time of the year, so you we'll get it, invitations to a ton of different festivals and kind of look at them. Um, even look at the market that surrounds that festival and where that festival is because what we'll generally do is when we go to these festivals, we don't just want to like show up to a festival, pour beer and then leave. So we'll typically send a couple pallets of beer, uh, to that city, set up some tapping events with local, uh, beer places or restaurants in the area. So we can actually go make connections in those cities, uh, kind of expand the name and our ethos once again and talk to people about what the Arizona Wilderness brand actually is and what we what we do a little bit outside of just, yeah, we make beer. Um, and yeah, we pour beer at a festival. So it kind of, it's, it's a lot of involvement. And then on top of that, if we can do three festivals in a weekend, like right now in March the 21st, I think we're involved in four or so different things outside of the brewery. Um, so it comes down to the staffing and manpower at that yeah, point. Yeah, the bandwidth. Yeah, if we have the ability to send people to all these places and do these things, we want to try and capitalize and and get you know the Arizona Wilderness name and brand out there as much as possible. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of those factors, a variety of things. So the whole nature of a lot of beer festivals has changed in the last couple of years, where they're not necessarily you know stadium parking lots and distributor driven, but are, are sort of driven by brewers these days Mm -hmm. and i guess after a couple of years of going to other people's festivals you all started doing yours yeah can you tell me about camp cool ship yeah so camp cool ship's way different than you know say strong beer this weekend or other festivals that people probably think about when they think of beer festival um camp cool ship was a way to bring brewers that we really appreciate admire and look up to in the industry together and not really have this, you know, you have to sit and pour for other people type of event around it, but really just a way to get people here, go out into the wilderness, sit around a campfire, talk, chat, um, you know, think about ideas or problems, or it's just really just creating an environment for conversation and uh, tightening the community that we believe in, in the beer industry um, outside and a kind of away from, the consumer a little bit yeah um, but we also will bring in their beer so we'll bring in their beer and we'll put it on tap at our downtown phoenix location and do a nice little you know camp cool ship tapping event and we'll distribute it to some of our favorite local bars in the area or you know down in tucson and flagstaff which kind of the, the three the major cities phoenix flagstaff and tucson um, in arizona so we'll kind of bring them in be able to showcase their products um, at places that we respect and know we'll treat their beer and communicate their beer well to other people but also, it's just really a way to bring some some industry professionals that we really, really admire and hold dear as very, very good friends um, to town and be able to have that conversation and make better and bigger connections, even, you know, not just with us and that brewery, but the breweries that we bring together. There's a lot of connections and breweries that have never worked together before come together and, you know... We're seeing the trickle down effect now of, you know, other breweries working together that kind of started their relationship at Camp Cool Ship. 
I mean, what's what do you see as the benefit for the overall beer industry and then for the drinker for those types of relationships? I think it increases creativity, you know, uh, and allows conversations to be had um, not only at camp, but outside of that, that create stronger bonds and can create a stronger industry in general. Um, so, you know, I, I think talking to other brewers and getting different input and thinking about, you know, stuff outside your little kind of like microcosm and your little bubble of your own brewery is, is extremely advantageous for the health and sustainability and progress of your company. So really just getting together with people that are in the same industry, think along the same lines, but have different ways of doing things and kind of can increase your knowledge or, you know, uh, open you up to different ideas or uh, processes, challenges, um, and things like that can really only benefit, obviously, the breweries themselves, but then trickle down the consumer. When you talk about creativity, so you as head brewer, where do you look for, for your creativity as you're trying to pot out a new recipe or pot out a new idea? Yeah, almost anywhere. Uh, obviously, the food and beverage um, industries are, are great places to go. And actually, the the El Jefe, one that we tried earlier with the Arizona oranges and Chiltepin peppers, yeah, uh, was an idea that stemmed from uh, Pizzeria Bianco. And uh, actually, from a Camp Cool ship, we took a bunch of the brewers that were in town to Pizza Bianco downtown. And one of their market pizzas was uh, like a citrus and pepper style pizza that kind of blew my mind for a little bit. So I've kind of been thinking about incorporating that or just making a beer inspired by that pizza. And yeah, that's how El Jefe was designed and made. Uh, other times, it's what's available to us. Yeah. So, um, you know, if a farmer has a surplus of an ingredient or a product becomes available or someone reaches out to us and says, hey, I have, you know, a thousand pounds of strawberries. Um, would you like to take them? Obviously, yes. We'll figure out a project for that. Uh, and then there's the other side of that where we're looking for specific ingredients and we'll kind of go out and search for, you know, a big one is actually Mexican limes, but Arizona grown Mexican limes. Um, they seem to be kind of hard to find in Arizona. There are a few farms that we work with yeah. that are able to produce them, but and what do you always, put that in? What's that? What are you putting that in? Uh, so we put in a couple different ones, but uh sophomoric was, is one that we've done in the past and it's a uh, basically like a lime IPA. That's really nice. Um, so yeah, it's, there's any angle really. Yeah. You can be kind of struck with a light bulb or, you know, creative inspiration, just walking down the street in your neighborhood and smelling you know, someone cooking dinner. <laughs> it's, it's really anywhere. As a brewer though, what are the styles that excite you? Like what are the, what are the styles that, you know, when you're getting ready to, you know, have a brew day, like a free day as it were, mm -hmm. uh, and you want to, you know, just make something that soothes your brewer soul, right. where do you go? I think there's two different directions I like to go with this. And one is lagers. Um, I love the process of brewing beer. And I think lager brewing is one of the best ways to examine your process and really fine tune it. So I think that's a great way to kind of just like get into the nitty gritty of your process and uh, maybe not find flaws, but find ways that you can really um, manipulate certain things that you're doing 
in the brew house or in your processing that can make the overall product a lot better. And I think kind of learning that style brewing can help you out uh, with processes with other beers pretty easily. So um, if I want to totally like geek out, nerd out, and really dive into um, the process of brewing, lager brewing is definitely where I like to go. Uh, the other side of that would be mixed fermentation, kind of like Saison style um, type brewing is, is, is the other the other angle that I really, really enjoy brewing, um, a lot of the unknowns that are associated with that, I like to, I kind of thrive on. Um, the the artistry of blending and how you can really, and very similarly to lager brewing, but you can really put your fingerprint on a, a beer by the way that you blend or the different flavors that you're trying to achieve and kind of the palate you have to work with. So I see those two as my my kind of, you know, I guess pillars that I like to, I like to work on. Are there styles that you haven't experimented with that you'd like to start to spend a little bit more time on or dive into a little bit deeper? Yeah. There's a lot of traditional styles that I've never really. Like what? Um, like, uh, what is it? The, um, common, like the California common or not California common. The pencil, what is it? I can't remember. Kentucky like, Common. Yeah, the Kentucky Common. We made a beer at East End one time. It was called the Pennsylvania Uncommon. Okay. And you um, used to work out in Pennsylvania. Yeah, exactly. At, yeah. At East End um, in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And some of those like pre-prohibition style loggers, things of that nature, even some of like the super old world styles, you know, emanating from Europe. Um, we have done some sati brewing. Um, I'd love to dive further into the no boil philosophies. We've done a couple, a couple no boil beers that have turned out pretty cool. In what way? Like, in what way do you find them to be cool? If it's just, it's. I mean, aside from no boiling heat, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so they, there's just such a different mouthfeel and character that I get out of those beers. That's really intriguing. Um, we did a no boil IPA once, and we haven't done it since. It didn't sell that well. Well, that's right. <laughs> so that was going to be my follow up, right? Because yeah. like, there's things that you can get jazzed as a brewer to make. But then you still have to sell pints of it across the bar. Yeah, exactly. And we definitely are out of luxury by having, you know, two bars and um, a relatively small brew house. I mean, 15 barrels isn't crazy small, but it's not, you know, 50 barrel brew house where we're turning, you know, 50 or 100 barrels of a no boil IPA. So um, we haven't had much trouble selling any of our products, uh, you know. But some things might go slower than others. Yeah, some things will definitely go slower than others. And that no-boil IPA was one of them. And I think a byproduct of a couple different things. And I think it could be fine-tuned and end up being a very well-selling beer. Um, But being, you know, the first or second time we've ever done the no-boil was, you know, we're just kind of getting our feet wet with that style of beer and brewing and understanding how it's going to work. So, yeah, definitely some things I'd like to change about that if we do it again in the future. Beyond the beer, one of the things that you guys are are big on is working with other companies that also share your philosophies Mm -hmm. and wondering how that first came to be and then how it's evolved and how it can continue to impact, I guess, your business, but then also beer in general, like what other breweries could take away from what you're doing here. Yeah, I think it really stems from, you know, John and Pat's love of the Arizona wilderness and like the outdoors in the state. Um, John, you know, moved here from Ohio 
and really just kind of fell in love with exploring the different areas kind of outside um, and around Phoenix or, you know, up north. And I think naturally um, through that love came a need and want to uh, think about conservation and sustainability efforts. And uh, since then, it's kind of been very, very deeply rooted into the business. So I think it, you know, it starts as like, hey, we want to do better. And it's this idea that you have, uh, but then putting into action is, I think, kind of where we're at right now and really starting to hit or kind of like lay the rubber to the road um, where, you know, a lot of our beers uh, have a very strong local and Arizona focus to them. You know, we have a beer right now called Don't Fuck It Up. And I mean, it's it's pretty much like our new, you know, way of our new like marketing and angle about the state of Arizona and what we believe in. It's like, you know, go out there, enjoy things, but don't fuck it up. Don't be an asshole. Uh, so that beer is brewed with Sanagua malted barley, right. um, Sonora malted white wheat. And then we and actually, these are the local monsters mm-hmm. that you're using as well. Yeah, exactly. And um, Arizona wildflower honey that we get from a local honey provider uh, with hives in, in the state. So it's really, um, you know, from here on out, there, there's been some conversations about uh, trying to incorporate a sixth C into Arizona. You know, we are the state of five C's. Um, Which are? Uh, so it's cotton, copper, cattle, citrus, and climate are the five. And um, there's been talks in the company to try and advocate for, you know, at least internally and to our consumer, a sixth C, which would be conservation, uh, which I think this state, you know, desperately needs to think about and being you know, one of the driest states in the country. Yeah. Um, relying on the Colorado River. It's, you know, something that we need to be cognizant of and aware of and, you know, our kind of like you know, our, our use of things needs to be monitored and, and, uh, we just need to be aware of it. So, um, yeah, I think this is kind of where we're finally getting those bigger thoughts that were had during the inception of what this company would be. Yeah. And we're starting to kind of lay down, um, exactly how we're going to drive this company forward and how we want our message and what we want to become in the future. Well, it'll be fun to watch all of that unfold. Yeah, it's, it's a very exciting time in the company. It is. Thanks for sitting down with me this afternoon. I mean, yeah, really appreciate it. Of course. It. I love chatting with you. Yeah, this is cool. Yeah. Thanks. That's Chase Saraiva, the head brewer of Arizona Wilderness Brewing. Go check them out next time you're in the state and check out the state in general. I was there at the invitation of the Arizona Brewers Guild to check out the overall scene. And I got to tell you, I was impressed. The breweries have personal identities, serve quality pints, and are spending a lot of time brewing with local ingredients and trying to support agriculture. There's a lot to explore. And that's what we do on this podcast. Each week, I'm trying to explore the country and talk with interesting beer folks that are having an impact on the beer industry and what's in our glass. You've already found it, so thank you. Subscribing and even leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice goes a long way in helping other people find the show. A few seconds can really help us out. Do you like what you hear? Do you have suggestions? Do you want to tell me about someone you think I should get on mic? You should just drop me a note at John Hall, that's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L, at BeerEdge.com, or join me on Twitter at John underscore Hall. Nate Schweber does the music, Jeff Quinn designed the logo, Andy Crouch has been through the desert on a horse with no name, and if you want to learn more about advertising on this show and other Beer Edge products, drop Ryan Newhouse a note at Ryan at BeerEdge.com. 
The show is produced by Beer Edge, the newsletter for beer professionals. A subscription to Beer Edge provides readers with smart and critical insights into the business and culture of beer. Each week, we talk directly to the players making an impact and report stories our audience has not heard before. The team at Beer Edge offers up a fresh and unfiltered look at the world of beer. Subscribe at BeerEdge.com. And that's it. That's the show for this week. New episodes release each Wednesday, and that's when I'll be back again to drink beer and think beer. Thanks so much for listening. I'm John Hall. Cheers. Cheers.